This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland, and today my guest is the award-winning playwright, producer, and screenwriter, Julia Cho. She co-wrote Pixar's next film, which is about Mei Lee, a confident, dorky eighth grader torn between being the perfect daughter to her mom and the chaos of adolescence. To complicate things more, whenever May gets too excited, she turns into a giant red panda. Here is part of the trailer for Turning Red. I'm Maylin Lee. I wear what I want, say what I want, 24 7, 365. This is gonna be the best year ever, and nothing's gonna get in my way. It's gonna be me. Our ancestors had a mystical connection with red pandas. Are you kidding me? This little quirk runs in our family. Any strong emotion yes! will release the panda. My whole life I've been perfect little May May. Yeah! But maybe I like this new me. I'll say this. I'm going to start this off by saying one of my favorite things in life, and it doesn't happen often anymore, is coming across like a movie or a TV show or a book that I know nothing about and then watching it and like with Turning Red, I absolutely love this film. I had no idea what it was about. I just love this film and set it up for someone who, who has not even seen the trailer. Well, Turning Red is, I guess, a kind of classic coming of age story, but told in a pretty not so classic way. It's about a young 13 year old Asian Canadian, or I guess Asian North American girl who is growing up with a really strong, kind of larger than life mother. And they're extremely close. And it's really about May kind of learning to find her own way. And as she does so, what helps and hinders that is that she turns into a giant red panda every time she gets too excited, (laughs) (laughs) which is not perhaps the thing that her her immaculate uh, poised mother would want. So I think the movie is just a combination of classic mother-daughter and kind of crazy red panda shenanigans. That's a great way of describing it. And I was going to be worried if we can't talk about the red panda, this would be a very short <laughs> I think it's out. I think the secret is out. I don't know if you've seen the billboards, but there's a giant red panda looming over Sunset Boulevard. I think the secret is out. Well, and just to be completely clear for those listening, so the girl's name is May or May May or May Ling, and the mother's name is Ming. Is that correct? So the daughter's name is Maylin Lee. That's her full name. Maylin Lee. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then her family, her mom. Well, her mom calls her May May as his little nickname, and then her mother's name is Ming. Ming Lee. Beautiful. And I'll be honest, I've not seen many coming of age stories about Asian American, let alone Asian American girls, and. It was so refreshing and so amazing. And how did you get involved in this? Because you have a background in theater. I know you've done some TV work as well, but how do you get to write, or uh, you co-wrote the screenplay. How do you get to do that for Pixar? You know, uh, Pixar does have a pretty robust development wing, right? Because they have constantly had these movies 
constantly have these directors, some of whom are writer directors, but every single project needs a writer. So what they have is this incredible woman, Mary Coleman, who is the head of development. And what she does, I, I think kind of quietly, uh, is find writers. And so what happens is she reads everything. And lucky for me, she also has a background in theater. <laughs> so she is sort of partial to playwrights. And what happened was that I was developing, or I was working on a play that was at Berkeley Rep. Uh, and I have a good friend, Keith Yunin, who I think had a script on the blacklist. So he's a screenwriter and playwright. Um, so I will say being on the blacklist will help you get read by Pixar, because I think Mary reads everything uh, that is sort of rises to the top, right? So he got involved with Pixar, and then he knew of me. And then I think he kind of put my name in the ring for Mary to read me. So I think uh, completely unbeknownst to me, um, the work had to uh, resonate with her. And lucky for me, it did. And I, I will talk a little bit more about some of your plays uh, in, in a bit, but this, I believe one of the plays you were doing at Berkeley, I want to make sure I'm saying it right, as Aubergine? Aubergine, right? yeah, that was the Aubergine. play. Uh -huh. um, and that means- Aubergine the, is uh, French for eggplant, or eggplant. also that kind of beautiful dark purple color that an eggplant is. Um, but that, and I, I'm telling the person who wrote it, but that play was about um, a father and a son, and mm -hmm. the father has a terminal illness, and the son is making like his favorite soup. Is that, is that, yeah. like a, is, I don't know, is that right? No, that's, that's kind of perfect. Yeah, the, the play centers around a, a Korean American chef who is kind of a mess, and his father is dying, and he has to go home and take care of him, and he wants to cook him a meal, but his father has never liked his cooking. <laughs> so kind of a tragedy in that way, but but also hopefully kind of uplifting. Well, and I, when I found that out, especially after seeing Turning Red, where the obviously it, there is a father in this, but it really is the mother, uh, the daughter, but also like the, the grandmother. Um, but it's their relationship's kind of like the core of this film. And in one sense, you have uh, your play where it feels like the two were apart and uh, death was bringing them together in a sense whereas this it's uh it's kind of the opposite whereas like coming of the age is pushing them apart and the red panda is what brings them together yeah i think that's exactly right and i think it is about those um currents that run in our families the things that pull us together and push us apart whether it's a wedding or a funeral or a meal um and i think part of the fun for me and working on turning red was that domi and i had both grown up right as asian americans in these families and and there are so many similarities, even though she's Chinese and I'm Korean, where we were like, oh, yes, the aunties and the dad has to wear slides with socks. Like there's so many things that we were just like, you know, like we knew how to be uh, specific and we could really draw on our own experiences in that. And and portraying that big family was so much fun. And, and uh, for those catching up on names, Domi Shi is the director and co-writer of the film. Yes. And she's also the one who did the wonderful Pixar short Bow. Yeah, so my first introduction to Domi, I think was in, at Pixar, but I was actually initially working on a different project. And I came in and was there for a little while, but I would sort of see Domi at meetings or cross paths with her. And then I saw Bow because they actually screened it at Pixar and I wept. I loved it so much that then I kind of accosted her <laughs> in the kitchen and was like, I love your short film. <laughs> it made me cry. I think by then she was used to people doing that. Um, but 
I, yeah, I just, I was such a big fan of hers even before we started working together. Uh, Bao made me cry. It made a lot of people cry. Right? <laughs> Something good film. about that film, yeah. Turning Red is a very funny film and I don't want to lose that with all the, the serious stuff we talk about. But I, the idea of a girl that transforms into a giant red panda is just so original to me. And my first kind of silly question to you is if you had a mystical animal inside you, that would come out with any strong emotion, what would it be? You know, I have to cheat a bit because I think I actually have two of them. And um, one is uh, a little hummingbird because I feel like that is kind of my spirit animal being, uh, I'm a child of a hummingbird. I feel like my mom is like small and very, very, very busy and just completely like does 20 things at once and does them all really well. And I kind of have that capacity in me, but then I feel like my other spirit animal that I would turn into. So I feel like it would be very random, like which I would turn into. I might be the hummingbird, <laughs> but I also might turn into an elephant because like, to me, that is the other like sort of pole of me, like, which is very large, slow moving, long memory, moves very slowly. <laughs> that would be my dad. <laughs> right. And I just sort of feel like hummingbird, or elephant, hummingbird, or elephant, which one am I today? But those are the two animals I, I sort of think of as portraying or representing my persona. And I think what's like fun about thinking about that is if you were the character in the film and you're like, you're going to monetize that, yeah. like you're going to get a photo with maybe a hummingbird I don't or know. maybe you should back up and get a photo with the elephant. Yeah, I'm not cute. There's no fur on either one. So it's kind of um, and I know this is an interview on me, but I really want to know what your spirit animal is and what you would turn into. Um, I think mine would be like a lazy lion. Like one of those like, <laughs> The lion, not the lions who are like going on the hunt, but the ones that's like in the tree and it has Sleeping, like a sassy tail. Like for like 20 hours out of 24, like that kind of thing. Yeah. And I say that because I just got off like a two week vacation. So I, I think that's kind of my mood right now. <laughs> I like it. I respect yeah. it. Yes. But let me ask you, uh, where did that come about? Because I feel like that's like a really original take. There's a lot of things that make this film wonderful, but that detail and that characteristic for May is, I just thought was so original. Where did that come from? You know, it was there before I arrived. It was this concept that Domi came up with. I mean, it was her initial pitch to Pixar. And I think when I've asked her about it, partly there's there's some there's some evasion, I think, because I'll ask her and she'll just be like, because they're so cute. <laughs> and I'm like, I know, but there's more to this than that. But I do think there's something about the red panda that it is an animal she personally loves. Uh, and I knew a little bit about red panda, but frankly, as soon as I joined the project and did my research, I they're unbelievably adorable. I don't, it's just genius that she made a whole movie about one. But then I think when I really think about it, it's also that there's a playfulness to the red panda, you know, and I think that playfulness is part of Domi. And, and then I also think there's a lot of inspiration in, um, you know, you'll see it actually in the whole movie, like this very uh, kind of homages to anime and Japanese animation. And to me, it was also a trope of a lot of Japanese storytelling. Uh, you have a lot of like um, stories where kids turn into things um, spirited away, like people turn into pigs. Like, so I think it was just her, uh, just the fact that she had such a passion for also Japanese anime and those kinds of stories that came out in this idea of sort of doing like a Western take on that. It's very fun because I think it's not only cute, but it's also like reckless. And yes. I think that's exactly what a lot of boy or girl or in any background, what you're at when you're at like 12 or 13. Yeah, I think that's right. They're a little mischievous. They're sort of not in, you know, they sort of tumble around. They're not the most like graceful creatures. So there's a lot of just kind of like cute awkwardness that is so adolescent. And, I mean, and there's a lot of big themes, but one of them is finding your voice and accepting it. And in May's sense, that is personified in the panda. Um, I'm curious, is that something you've had to do 
uh, as a writer? Because if your writing is one thing, but who you are as a person might differ? That's a good question. I don't know if I deliberately try to find it, but I do feel like early on as I first started writing plays, I could tell if things worked or didn't work. And it seemed to have something to do with how honest I was being. So I would just sort of try to write as honestly as I could. And then what started happening was, you know, you kind of get into a mode where you're writing almost out of your subconscious. You're not really even aware of what you're doing and which is great, right? That's flow and that's what you want. And when I could access that and then write something and then step back and reread it and look at it, I felt like I was almost seeing what I was after having written it. Like I could look at it and start to understand, oh, maybe that's my voice. Like I didn't know it before I started writing, but I think the more I wrote, the more I got a sense of what things I gravitated towards and what tone I seemed to have. And what started to emerge over time was like, oh, I had this really happy, sad tone. <laughs> like, you know, like I, I sort of can write light, but I'm also sort of always drawn to the sort of undercurrents of our lives, which are often loss or sadness and navigating that. And so, yeah, over time, I think I have, I've figured out what my voice is, but it's not because I found it. It's because I think the writing showed me it. I mean, I write like kind of a, as a reviewer and a news person now, and it took me a long time to learn like theater was really written from my heart. It was really, it poured out of me. Whereas writing like, hey, Apple announces like this new thing. It's like, I had to learn how to like process that through my heart, but also technically get it out, you know? <laughs> I didn't have time to like mm -hmm. mill about. And I know uh, I read an interview you did with American Theater Magazine and you talk, I love that you, you were so open and vulnerable about this, but you talked about uh, having writer's block. And uh, you, you, I believe you're working on a play uh, called Language Archive, or mm -hmm. is that correct? And yeah. you're just saying that you felt like you barely managed to write it, but um, in the interview took place six years after that, and you just said, yeah, whatever, the dam is broken, you're just flowing, and uh, you were using water metaphors is, <laughs> is what the quote said. And I'm curious, like, to this day, how do you deal with those moments where it's not flowing, and how do you find that creativity or spark? I think initially, probably around the time I did that interview, you know, with the language archive, I had a period of time where I just couldn't find it. I couldn't find a play. I couldn't write. And it was such grief. It was really difficult. And I think partly it was because my sense of worth was so bound up in writing. It almost felt like if I can't write or don't write, then what good am I? Um, it felt like I had no purpose. And so I think that really threw me. And, and so I, I got to the point where I got really terrified of writer's block and I would read, um, there's, I think Joseph Mitchell, who was this famous New Yorker writer who wrote brilliantly, but then also had, I think one of the most infamous cases of writer's block ever. <laughs> like, like he was known for um, just writing these amazing stories and, and things that appeared in New York and then never writing again. And his story would sort of haunt me. <laughs> You know, I would be like, that's me. But I think eventually I started to feel something in the back of my brain that could be a play. And I, I did somehow finish, write and finish the language archive. But actually after that, I did not have this like fertile period of writing again and again. That, that didn't happen. There was a long silence after that play as well. Um, but then I think I had, I had a kid. That might explain part of the writer's blog. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that explains that a, might lot explain right a lot there. right there. And also how you, that became an inspiration. Yeah, for yeah. Stories, right? Yeah, so life happened, right? And I was doing a lot of television work, which I think also kind of interfered with my ability to write uh, in a theater way. 
And then I had another child. And then somewhere in the haze of my second child, I started writing again. And, and that was kind of a weird, crazy thing where I wrote like suddenly, very suddenly after a long time off two plays. And then like I wrote Aubergine and I wrote another play office hour like in a row. And then since then, now, once again, it has been a pretty long time since I've written a play. But I think having been through all that, like the silence and the productivity and then the silence and then the productivity, like I'm a little bit more forgiving and I have a little bit more trust that it'll be okay and that this, the wheel will turn again eventually. And now I feel less despair because <laughs> I just <laughs> feel like I'm older and have seen the cycle a few times. So I'm just kind of waiting now. I, I have that little buzz in the back of my brain, but I'm just going to wait and see what, what it turns into. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The name of this podcast is called I'm So Obsessed. And Julia, what are you currently obsessed with? I might be a little bit too obsessed with K-pop boy bands. In particular, dance videos. They're dance practice videos. I, I could watch those all day. So these are the videos where they're not like doing the full-on video. They're just like dancing in a room to their video. And I, I, I can't even... <laughs> I can't even it's so they're so good it is and help help me understand a little bit here as someone who's uh who yeah i get k-pop i get definitely get bts but i don't know the dance practice videos is it because they're the like like they like uh fort town is they're the cool kids no, they're like it's like it's like they're virtuosic dancers <laughs> they're like oh. No, like in the sense of this, like yes. physical performance, physical performance. I mean, I lived in New York. There was like modern dance happening all over the place, you know, and I see these guys move and I'm like, this is art. This what they're doing is art. You know, it's a uh, it gets a little obscured in their actual videos because there's a lot of other stuff. There's costumes and often quite a bit of makeup. But the dance videos, they're just like wearing normal clothes, street clothes, and they're just dancing their asses off. And it is so inspiring and incredible. So I watched, I started off watching BTS dance videos <laughs> and totally it. got sucked into that. Um, I know them all by name. Uh, I seriously wish they would watch the movie. That's my fantasy. But um, then I also just started getting to the other K-pop bands because they're all such great dancers. So I, I, I just feel like that right now is my current, like, if you, yeah, I could, again, I could watch that all day. I, I look, I'm even getting like a little fluttery talking. I would say so we could pause, we could pause no. the recording. We can watch some videos. So that would be my current, um, yeah, my, my guilty obsession. I should say not even guilty. I should be proud. Yeah. In fact, I think guilty obsession is kind of interesting because, well, I guess I grew up Irish Catholic, so I understand <laughs> guilt a bit, but I, I think, you know, I think when people say that it's actually things you like, but maybe you don't want to admit, but I think nowadays, I think that's the other thing going back to turning red a little yeah. bit is uh, there's a dorkiness to me <laughs> who a totally. lot of us can can like. And even if this was like 10 or 15 years ago, that wasn't always celebrated by our culture. And now you have like nerd culture and comic book things becoming like these big movies and all these things that were kind of like you got made fun of when I was young. And it's so cool to see that embrace. So I don't think it's a guilty, uh, we call it what's guilty pleasure. Is that, that's what we yeah. say, right? 
yeah. You're right. Yeah, I think, you know, I do, I think you're totally on, on point with this sort of shift in the culture where like nerdiness and dorkiness is kind of celebrated, but what's really being celebrated is authenticity, which is what's so amazing. Like this idea that you can really be yourself and that people can sense when you're being yourself so that when we see it, we love it, you know? All right. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about some of the characters. I mean, we have May and her mom. Um, I, I don't know why I want, I want to talk about these, this, this group of characters first. Fort Town, where did Fort Town come from? And how cool is it to have see songs written by Billie Eilish and Phineas? Well, there was always a boy band element because I think if you write 13 year old girls, I don't know how you don't have. Well, let me, Julia, let me go back for a second. Yes. I, I, actually, a question I meant to ask a long time yes. at the beginning of the interview is what, why is this, this film is like set in like the late 90s, early 2000s. Mm -hmm. What was the choice behind that? So it was in 2002, um, pretty much solely because Domi was 13 in 2002. Okay, okay. <laughs> no, but I think it's not egocentrism that fuels this choice because I actually think partly it's because there's so many decisions to be made in building a world that I honestly feel like just pegging it to her actual experience meant that she could make this whole slew of decisions on what they should be wearing, or what they should be eating or what the world should look like. And she could do it with utter certainty, if that makes sense. Like you don't have to then research it. Cause you just be like, when I was 13, I had a Tamagotchi. It looked like this, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. And yeah. That's what Which you is need. a big reason that's yes. in there. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then I think, so that was the main reason I think. And it was a very, you know, smart, practical reason. But then also of course it's like evocative for her to think back on that time and helps her tap into her 13 her inner 13 year old. And then I also think that it just paid dividends and also being a little bit more of an innocent time. You know, like we didn't have to have 13 year old now teenagers who would be texting constantly and kind of doing very different things, frankly. So um, yeah, so it just was always set in 2002. And as you said, there was, there's the band, boy band called Fort Town. Um, and at first when you see them, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. But then, yeah, I won't give things away, but it, it's amazing how, how, perfect you got like 90s let late that era night late 90s early 2000s boy bands but also like the songs are stuck in my head that's all i'm gonna say it's brutal they're so like yeah so i just feel like they've been stuck in my head for like seven months so thank you now that i can you know give them to the world here you have these now you know i should also say that i think domi was also obsessed with boy bands and so that was sort of part of it uh, i actually was not so obsessed with boy bands when i was her age but then through the course of making the movie, I got really into them. <laughs> I would say, who are some of the boy bands you've gotten into? I mean, I'm going to guess O-Town has to be one of them. Well, I have to eight, say we did use an O-Town for Scratch, like when we were doing one of our versions. And we used this really incredibly emotional O-Town song that I was so proud I found it. I was like, I found, I found this song. Um, so there was a lot of deep diving into, uh, for sure, like NSYNC and Backstreet Boys. But I have to say, uh, what I think the movie also does really well is that it exists on a meta level, right? Like it's 2002, but there's sort of a very modern sensibility as well. Oh, absolutely. So a lot of the boy bandness, a lot of the inspiration started coming from K-pop bands. <laughs> so then, and then I got really lost. I went down the rabbit hole on K-pop bands so hard. And so I just became like a huge like BTS fan and a huge like NCT, like all that stuff. I just got really into it and still am. So yeah, that that was my education in boy bandness. It, it, it didn't hit me at 13, but it hit me hard now. <laughs> <laughs> well, then the second uh, group of characters I want to talk about is, is May's friends. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how 
that was formed and I just want to hang out with it. I wish I was like a 12 year old boy. I'd want to hang out with those girls because they seem so cool and so nerdy. I love it. Yeah, no, they're fantastic. I think they were just based on our friends, but also parts of ourselves or even like friends we have now, but just imagining them in 13 year old form. You know? um, so yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I think that was another thing that we drew on because we both had like tight circles of friends and just wanted to tell a new story, like not the story where the girls are backbitey or kind of judgy. And anytime I wrote a line that was a little too judgy, it was like, we would like, Domi would spot it immediately, be like, no, they wouldn't do that. And so we, it was just a really, um, it's just like this like inner sense that the girls really should be supportive and there for each other. And, and I think that was definitely like such a great counterweight to her mom who is so judgy, right? So I think it just helps really balance the movie. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like going to the premiere of uh, this film? It just, the premiere made me so excited to see photos from that. And there's some quotes I'm gonna ask you about, but I just wanna hear what your perspective was. That was a pretty overwhelming experience, I have to say. Uh, as a kind of an introverted writer who hangs out in her sweats before COVID even, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> it was a lot and it was really exciting and it felt like once in a lifetime. So I tried really hard to be present for it because I was like, I don't, I, you know, this is just such a completely unique experience to have a movie premiere, to have the Disney juggernaut behind it and so yeah, I try to enjoy it and try to be present. I don't know if I completely succeeded, but um, it was pretty amazing. I think you did. I saw some photos and you'd be like at the front mic rocking it right <laughs> next to like the actors. Smoke I would and say mirrors, this, smoke and smoke mirrors. And mirrors, makeup, light, yes. stop kidding. Um, I get that, but I would say this. Uh, so a lot of headlines coming out about this film is how the like artistic leadership of the film is all women, which mm -hmm. is is absolutely wonderful and should be celebrated. And another headline that, that comes out, I think it was Hollywood Reporter said, this is the most efficient Pixar film ever made, which I think is, a, is an interesting quote. Um, and they said it only took four years, which is hysterical because yes. you're like, okay, how long does it normally take? What does either of those, when you see headlines like that, what does that mean to you? And what do you hope people take away from if they see a story or see a headline like that? Well, you know, I think the first headline I'm enormously proud of, right? Because it's like all female leadership. I think what's also not highlighted as much, but is equally important to me is that there, it's also a very Asian American leadership because we also had um, not just Domi and me, but Rona Liu, who was the uh, art director of it, who like basically helped shape the whole look of it, right? And then um, also just in all the departments, like the co-head of animation, Patty Kim, like, so you'll just see a very large um, Asian American presence also even among the story artists and the animators, there's a lot of the studios. So I think there was just a lot of pride on that score. So when I see the headlines that celebrate those kinds of things, the representation, the diversity, the inclusion of gender and, and race, it's just really, it makes me really proud. It makes all of us really proud. Um, I think the second headline, I, I agree with you. I saw that too. And I think it's a little funny that that's the thing that's being pointed out, efficiency, right? Um, I think there's a slight danger in yoking efficiency to projects that are held by women or minorities because, you know, it's a little bit of a, I'm not sure it's not necessarily model minority, but it can stray that way. Um, I, I just saw such a commitment to making sure that the experience of working on that film should be a positive one. And that was even maybe more true once the pandemic hit and everybody was home. And there was a lot of conversation about making sure you're taking care of yourself, making sure you're not overworking. And I think what it showed, I guess I wish instead of efficient, they sort of like would use a different word for it because I think what it showed is that if there's a real care taken 
for the people who are working that people want to bring their best to it, you know? And then I think because people wanted to bring their best to it because they cared so much and felt cared for that, that a lot of work got done well and with a lot of care so that it didn't have to be repeated or fixed, you know what I mean? So that's my sense of it, that, that what they're kind of poking at or highlighting, just how smooth the process can be, I think, when there is a lot of kindness and generosity involved with it. And for me, I don't think that's related to specific gender or ethnicity. It's something we can all achieve. Um, but I do think that for this particular group, that was important. And, and, it's, and it's thrilling to me that it actually worked, <laughs> you know, that it actually worked. <laughs> So that is also something I'm really, really proud of. I would like to wrap up. We do a thing called pick one, and I'm going to give you a selection of things to choose. Okay. You have to choose one of them, and it doesn't mean the thing you choose is better than the others, and you are more than welcome to talk it out. Some of these are pretty easy, I think, some okay. maybe less so. Um, so first pick one is pick one, TV, theater, or film? Theater. Theater? is the untrammeled jungle of story. Do you know what I mean? Like there are kind of structures that people use to write television and film. Uh, not everyone, obviously you can have messy theater, I mean, messy film and messy TV, but I think that inherent in theater is a kind of wildness because there are no rules as much and there's a real freedom to experiment there. So I think that's what makes it exciting that when I go to see a play, I really don't know what I'm going to see and it's live and it just feels intimate. Um, I have to say all this by memory because it's been so long <laughs> since I've actually seen a play. But, I would say, uh, but, yeah. theater's coming back though. Yeah. yeah, and I guess there's that too, the fact that it feels precious and more precious even now because we can we see how fragile it can be. Um, okay, here, here's the next one. I, I'm just gonna apologize for asking you this. This is a horrible thing to ask any writer, but pick one, aubergine, office hour, or the piano teacher? Aubergine, um, because aubergine was for my dad and he's gone now, so yeah that one. Oh, wow. Oh, I, yeah, I definitely got to get a copy of this. <laughs> Here's the last one. So pick one, mm. finishing the first draft for turning red. Second would be handing in the final draft for turning red or third, seeing the premiere of turning red. Pick one. Finishing the first draft of turning red. It wasn't the moment I handed it in, but I had this moment where, um, you know, it was the first thing I'd really like it was the first draft of the whole movie I written for Pixar, right? And um, and I knew they were really high on the movie and that they were that expectations were really high. And so I knew it was my fault if it didn't work. Is <laughs> basically what I'm trying to say. I knew I knew they loved you know the concept and they loved everything about it. And so it was really my job to come in and write a draft that would get the approval for production to start production, which is not animation but like the whole reels process. And so there was a lot of fear turning it in, needless to say, and a lot of nervousness. And um, I had, we had a note session with Lee Unkrich, who was our, he was kind of exec producing it at the time. And then he stepped away to do other things. Um, and I didn't know him at all, just through his movies, which are extraordinary. And so I had all this respect for him. I don't even know, honestly, if he, if he remembers this at all, but um, he he read the draft and gave us notes. And I think he was the first one I was getting feedback from. Um, and I just was still kind of an awe of Pixar and of him and of the whole process. And he just read it. And I think one of the things he said was, you are a great writer. 
and I just was wow. like, oh. <laughs> and then I kind of like don't really remember what happened after that. It was sort of like a moment of just, it's just really, I couldn't believe you said that, you know? So I think that's what sticks out to me, like that moment where I felt like, wow, maybe I, maybe I do know what I'm doing, <laughs> you know? And, and like, I should say that draft was far from perfect. It was enough to get a screenlit and we kept going, but the movie as it is now is like five more drafts beyond that, you know what I mean? So it wasn't like, good job, you're done. It was like, oh, now the hard work begins. But just to be given that was so special and so um, generous. Like he didn't have to say that, you know? He didn't know me at all. <laughs> so, uh, so maybe that's why it meant a lot. I want to thank Julia for chatting with me and I want to thank you for listening. You can watch Turning Red on Disney Plus starting March 11th. I'm So Obsessed was created by our executive producer, Danielle Ramirez. Our editor and lead producer is Sophia Fox Sowell. And this episode was produced by Rebecca Flinor. Please take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. Follow the show on Twitter at I'm So Obsessed Pod. And until next time, take care.